0: just to give you a bit of a primer, I think like sort of, we didn't really have like a specific set of questions for this. So I think we're just gonna like kind of talk to you about like sort of your deal, maybe some of your opinions on the fintech space. And if you want to like talk shit we can just talk shit for the <laughs> next 20
1: minutes. Sure.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's interesting. Yeah.
1: I mean, well, yeah, let's, let's just tee it off then. Um, All right. what was, should I just start or what? Meeting an investor I just got a call
0: from the lawyer. Did I need to get five? Oh, okay, fine. He's not joining. That's fine. Okay. Um, Yeah, why don't you do the intros yeah. and I, I can tee off the conversation.
1: Hello, Barbarians, and welcome to a special episode of the LLB Podcast, Low-Level Barbarians from Asia on Asia with debate and discussion on trading topics. Today, we have a special episode. Uh, we are with... Zach New, right good friend of Dave Chang man at the high ground um and Dave I guess you said you want to tee us off so why don't you uh let us know what's going on and why we're here yeah
0: yeah so for, for those of you that are in the know Zach um I've known Zach for also like six seven years at this point um so he is the founder and CEO of Curlic, which is a direct debit fintech company and they were recently acquired uh by Razorpay out of India for 20 million U S dollars. And so very happy for Zach. Zach's been a, he's a good friend. He's a super yes. nice guy. Couldn't have been to a, a nicer guy and has handsome hair. <laughs> so I, I feel like it yes. would be, it'd be interesting to get Zach on the show, you know, to talk about, um, you know, the deal, his experiences, his outlook for FinTech in the region, um, and then just any general commentary. So, um, why don't, why don't we start this way? Like, so I was, um, thinking about how to start this conversation, Zach, and like, what's the best entry points. And I think for me, one of the most interesting aspects that I know about your business, maybe it's not common knowledge out there, is your relationship with your co-founder, Steve, right? So you, you guys kind of have a relatively substantial age gap, I believe 36 years is is your age gap so it's a bit atypical for for a start very
1: anti-silicon valley right yeah
0: so it's a bit it's it's a bit atypical right for sort of like the traditional narrative of startup founders and, and sort of relationships so maybe like we can start there like sort of like give us some context about like you know how you and Steve started working together your the dynamics of your relationship and you know what what's it like to to have someone that's maybe on a bit of a different at least lifestyle <laughs> than you when it comes when it comes to work. And, you know, I'll, I'll let you go from there.
1: <laughs> yeah. And, and, and to be clear also, you you are the CEO. So Steve was in a different role, I'm guessing, right? Uh,
2: yeah. I mean, he's a director of the company, but sort of, okay. I, I think at our stage, sort of there's it's sort of jack of all trades um, at this point. I mean, it is, it is obviously outside of the norm. Uh, you know, we often joke that, we both went to the same school. Uh, just <laughs> I, I was a kid at the school and he was a parent. Um, you know, and we, you know, when we started the company, when we founded the company back in was it, 2017, 2018 time, um, I was 26, he was 62. So we were the direct inverse. So, you know, it, we had some running jokes in the office around um, hashtags like 2662 and, and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> so um, it was pretty funny, you know. But it, in terms of our relationship, we've got a really great relationship. Um, you know, I think, I think, and sort of, you know, when I, when I, when I strip that back a little bit, you know, why, why do we have such a great relationship? Obviously, you know, we are close family friends, but also, you know, it's, it's Steve's way of working. You know, he's, he's, he brought me into the business. He's obviously given me a lot of, um, free reign, um, as to sort of, mm-hmm. you know, what we do with the business and, and responsibilities, but also at the same time, act as a mentor. Um, you know, and I think, uh. Mm-hmm you know, from what is does seem maybe a strange arrangement, particularly when it comes to sort of start and sort of, you know, founding teams and, and, and stuff like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Actually, I think it's been a big, big advantage to us. You know, um, he is sort of the old head, uh, you know, he's mm-hmm. sort of run many businesses before been in the corporate world as well and sort of, you know, you know, run sort of very large teams. Um, but on the flip side, you know, I bring a young, fresh perspective, uh, you know, and, and, and certainly, you know, that I suppose I'm not going to say drive because he's he's very driven as well, but just a, a different perspective. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think, I think the two combined uh, uh, are definitely big advantages that, that, that we find. And, you know, I think, uh, yeah, we bring the best of both worlds.
0: Interesting. Yeah. I mean, one of the things uh, in my experience, you know, one of, one of the, the, the primary drivers of like, startup failure is founder friction and, and mm-hmm. when founders, you know, either butt heads and come to, you yeah. know, a, a junction where we no longer agree so I'm, I'm just curious you know uh given the dynamics of the relationship like how do you guys how do you guys handle you know sort of not necessarily conflict but you know differences in opinion uh you know whatever you want to call it
2: yeah it's a good it, the weird thing is we haven't had that many arguments
1: <laughs> um, wow Lucky. all the way so through an easy. acquisition yeah all the way wow yeah. that's amazing
2: verified Rare, air man yeah. Yeah. yeah i mean we disagree about a lot of things uh okay. but i think particularly when it comes to work setting you know obviously you know we are sort of different ends of the spectrum in terms of sort of age uh but sort of ego is always left aside business comes first you know and then and sort of mm-hmm. you know when you when you take sort of you know view things black and white and stuff like that i mean at least you know we haven't we haven't really sort of gone into sort of big, big arguments. Um, so, you know, I think, I think disagreements always healthy, you know, particularly when it comes to running companies and stuff like that. Uh, but yeah, no, everything has been pretty great, you know, and I think, I don't (laughs) know whether, again, that that stems from the fact that, you know, we've known each other for many, many years, um, mm, you know, which is, uh, you know, and, and sort of very intertwined in, in, in in that perspective. Um, Mm. But yeah, no, I can't really share much on sort
1: of falling out. So. <laughs> well, I, I, think, I think there's some things we could pick out for people to learn, and especially like, what aspects are you holding firm on? Because, like you said, you do disagree. So, where, where are you holding on? And it's, it, I'm sure it's not the, the type of relationship where he's an older guy, and then you will just acquiesce just to experience, right? So, I'm sure there's what areas are you really staying firm on? Where areas are he standing firm on? And then, what does that look like when you try to? I don't know find find a middle ground i guess to to and the, the right answer is whatever successful for the company right so like yeah. how do you get there
2: yeah i mean that's a good question and i mean just thinking of i mean one sort of example would be um and i and i don't know so you know and, and again this sort of comes back to the ha- sort of having a good sort of combination in in, in terms of uh, where we are in life you know i am um, mm-hmm. well when we started the business i was 26 he was obviously 62 first mm-hmm. time entrepreneur um I had no idea what I'm doing uh, <laughs> to, an extent, to, to, <laughs> to an extent, yeah. it's still the case, you know, but I mean, how, how we ran the business, you know, initially, for example, uh, you know, he's very conservative. He will always joke, hey, I'm a Welshman, which is he jokes is worse mm. than being a worse than being a Chinaman, uh, you know, and, <laughs> and uh, you know, so he's super tight when it comes to costs. Uh, yeah, in, the fl- in the flip side, you got me who's sort of like, yeah, you know, like first time entrepreneur, exciting, raise a bit of VC funding, et cetera, et cetera. Let's spend, um, yeah. you know, so, uh, I, I, suppose after sort of many conversations you sort of meet in the middle, you know, we can't be super, super tight. You know, if we want to grow this business on the mm. flip side, you know, we can't be sort of typical startup style, just go big, you know, and, and, and subsequently end up at, well, nowhere really. Uh, so, I mean, that's just one example of where we've yeah. sort of take, taken different views and sort of, you had to meet in the middle.
1: Well, if you, if you guys think about all your friends who are also entrepreneurs and maybe have good successful partnerships, don't just tend to think that's the dynamic. Someone is like super out there trying to just, you know, grow and do everything. Other person is very grounded and very execution oriented. Makes it kind of work. Right. Yeah. I feel like those tend to be the best partnerships that I, that I see. I don't know. I don't know yeah. if you guys see the same thing. Yeah,
0: no, I agree. I agree with that. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so another thing is like, um, I mean, direct debits for me just seems sort of like, the way that I always sort of understood your business and the way I always viewed your business actually, it seemed like you guys had decent market traction, like right away. Like you didn't actually have to go through, um, again, this is my perception. Correct correct me if I'm wrong. Right. So you guys had sort of like decent part of market from the get go. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious, you know, you know, since you didn't have to go through that, that process of finding, it. I mean, or maybe you did, uh, but like, assuming that my, uh, analysis is correct, what was the most painful thing in the early days? Uh, like, what, what was breaking the most? What did you have to spend most of your time doing? Hmm. Good question. God, I'm trying to rewrite my,
2: my memory here. <laughs> um, you know, I, I mean, we, we, we had product, I wouldn't say we had product market fit, but we, we built, built the product very incrementally. Mm. Um, You know, there there, there is and again, always starting from that sort of base, which is we're solving a problem, uh, you know, as opposed to sort of have a solution looking for a problem, um, you know, and built the product pretty incrementally up from that. I think sort of in in the early days, when I look back, uh, a lot of the, I suppose, not issues, but the the challenges we had to face, obviously, we're B2B company, Um, Mm -hmm. they're not that many B2B Uh, fintechs or SaaS companies uh, in Malaysia, period, Um, you know, and certainly are a few more now, uh, but, you know, obviously you've got to sort of convince clients to go to the cloud. Um, Not only that, Mm. you know, you've got to educate the market around sort of in our case it was around recurring payments, Mm. Um, you know, so you have to educate people constantly around sort of why you should do this, why you should do that. You know, it's okay for your customers to sign up for this. You know, it's such a new product and things are super, super sensitive when you get to sort of money and, and financial services um and uh you know so educating the market of course sales you know learning sort of how how we could get off the ground on that front particularly when you are a small company particularly when it's sort of uh you're you're up against in some cases banks and stuff like that it's a credibility issue Uh, so you know i i I suppose in the early days those were really really the 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 big challenges to be honest challenges we still face uh but becoming a little bit easier uh, on that front
0: Yeah. I mean, I I think the second interesting point you made there, like when you were saying like there's not a lot of B2B SaaS businesses based out of Malaysia. And I think that's objectively true. And I'm just kind of curious, like, you know, in your analysis, what do you, what do you think that is? You know, like, in my opinion, I always thought Malaysia was a pretty fertile ground to, Mm. to found a tech company. You know, there's like good, well-educated workforce. Everyone speaks English. The infrastructure is okay. Regional access. But yeah, for whatever reason, it just doesn't seem to have like, um it, it doesn't seem to be a popular um angle of approach I'm just you know curious like what your thoughts are about that
1: uh
2: I think generally speaking bis- the business community has been quite slow to adopt um tools generally um mm-hmm. you know up until maybe about two three years ago and obviously COVID has accelerated that you know uh extremely quickly yeah. um so you know na nowadays I think I think you're sort of constantly seeing it's sort of the new startups popping up, generally speaking, you see a lot more B2B as opposed to B2C uh, yeah. consumer plays. Mm. Yeah. Um, I think I think that's just a general shift in, in well, sort of everywhere, but particularly Southeast Asia, we're starting to to, to really see sort of a lot of capital pour into that space, too. Yeah. Um, so, you know, whilst I think business adoption has been slow, I think we're sort of picking up um, and uh, hopefully we'll see a lot more fertile ground for, yeah. um, you know, businesses such as
1: ours. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Do do you think you're seeing this, that the capital is pushing the trend or the entrepreneurs are finding the problem and pulling the trend to solve it for these businesses? Yeah, it's good. That's a good question. Mm.
2: That's a good question, because I think we would argue that Oh, the entrepreneurs pushed it, uh, you know, maybe with your acquisition now. Yeah. You know, maybe. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I think what we I mean, if you look at the States, for example, um, I think the general trend recently has been shifting away from sort of very high burning consumer businesses um, into mm-hmm. sort of, you know, B- B2B plays. We're seeing that play out yeah. here as well. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, so um, and I think I think VCs are getting wiser uh, to sort of you know w- just very high cash burning businesses you know and and, and then yeah. buying market share etc so um yeah i mean you could answer it both ways i like to think the entrepreneur is pushing yeah. it though sure. <laughs> yeah.
0: all right. All right. you're Fair not enough. you're not biased at all so <laughs> <laughs> well let's okay let's maybe then shift tax a bit and talk about sort of like the, the investor space and i think your deal in particular right so i mean as our listeners of the show typically are pretty well informed. So I think everyone here Mm -hmm. knows that it's like a very frothy time, uh, in the VC market. So, you know, as a young ambitious guy, you know, and whose company's doing well, you're growing well, you know, I think you guys grew like what? 300% year over year last year, like some really impressive metrics. Right. So like, I think the, the question that everyone always asks, the, the natural question is like, why sell? you know, why not, why not keep going and see how far you can take it on your own? Yeah. Mm.
2: So I think first things first, it, it, it's not a full acquisition. Sure. Um, so it's a majority acquisition, okay. yeah. um, mm. you know, and, and, and in effect, um, you know, uh, Steve and myself still retain a, a stake in the company. So there is plenty of upside still, um, mm. you know, sure. which, uh, I think is, yeah. You know, so, so, so we view it that way. Um, I think on the whole, the deal was a win-win for all involved sort of you know um our existing investor or well, previous shareholders who who've left us mm-hmm. who made a good return in sort of two three years um you know and and uh for founders you know uh, uh our employees clients etc um, and of course raise a pay um why we chose to do this uh you know i think it was really you know when we took a step back um it was really saying how can we go where we want to go and as quickly as we want to do it, mm. um, you know. And the more we spoke to the Racepay team, uh, the more we sort of understood their business, what they had done. The parallels were just, you know, really, really there. Um, you know, they built up some incredible scale in India, um, but you know, in terms of the thesis, the vision of the company, their product set, uh, really, really aligned to us. You know, and and obviously being part of a seven and a half billion dollar company uh, versus you know a company which was way less than that in Malaysia, <laughs> you know, it, it certainly would help us to to give an opportunity um, to really go fight the big boys, uh, not only just in Malaysia, but, you know, in Southeast Asia, et cetera, um, serve our clients better, you know, give employees, you know, a better, better opportunities. Um, and I think, you know, obviously, sort of from a personal level as well, still retain a lot of upside, um, you know, in the future. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think it was a win, 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 win for everyone. Yeah. Um, and sort of, you know, I think, you know, once you draw away past the ego aspect, particularly, uh, you know, mm. um, then, uh, yeah, you know, I think it made sense. Hmm.
1: So, so if I'm reading, if I'm reading in between the lines, there's a big potential for headwinds for competition going forward. And I think the way I think about B2B, after talking to a lot of SaaS founders in the regions, and there's only a handful that are like really. I think competent and, and know the space. Well, is that depending, of course, which, which segment you're looking at, you know, you're only talking about customers in the thousands, maybe for, for Southeast Asia alone, which is, I mean, it's a big, it's a big TAM, you know, but uh, you know, it's a very different kind of game and to win trust, you're talking about longer sales cycles and this kind of thing, and more handholding in the Southeast Asia region, which is Western looking for more tool centric type of SaaS where they do it themselves. Right. So um, I don't know this, do, do you, do you feel that, you know, that in, you need it, to do this deal to compete with, you know, the grabs because they're pushing into financial, you know, you know, Shoppe's doing pay. Um, is this just a feature stack for Razor or is this just purely the, the really, like they say, the, the story of the narrative is that this is really just really the entry point for, for the gateway to Southeast Asia. And, you know, then why Southeast Asia, if that's the case?
2: Yeah. So I think from the Razor Pay angle, this is definitely a gateway into into Southeast Asia. Sure. Um, you know, w- w- these guys are the number one in India uh, the team behind it are sort of incredible and in, in the products they've rolled yeah. out, you know, and, and I mean, in effect, they are the stripe of India, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, uh, you know, by, by, by a long way, um, mm-hmm. uh, they've obviously, you know, want to replicate a lot of that success, uh, into Southeast Asia. Um, you know, as, as an example in India, you know, uh, UPI payments, uh, which is sort of the real time payments, uh, uh infrastructure yeah. that sits in India. Um, India that got the largest uh, uh, real time payment network in, in the world. Obviously, mm-hmm. they've got a billion people, yeah. um, you know, and by default, these guys are the largest player in the market, so they process the most real time payments in the world, um, you know, which is incredible for the company which only started up in 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, what we are seeing now in Southeast Asia, uh, which we think presents a big, big opportunity, is the fact that we're starting to see this infrastructure roll out here too, um, mm-hmm. you know, as an example, okay. in, as an example in Malaysia, you've got do it now, um, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and yeah. And uh, now you guys see it, you know, you go to the store, you see the QR code, um, you know, and then it's point of sale uh, type of uh, uh, transaction.
1: What we're going to start seeing. Sorry, but to clarify before we move forward to do it now was is basically mandated from the government, which is uh, like an infrastructure in the banking system. That's right. Where everyone is connected by. uh, Actually, I'm not sure what what it is behind technology wise.
2: So so do it now is just it's a real-time payment network, uh, that is uh, a bank to bank transaction. And all the banks in Malaysia are part of that scheme All the banks, as well as sort of the Mm e-wallets. So in in effect, you know, it's using that network, a domestic network versus using an
1: international network like Visa and MasterCard. Um, and I think that actually did power the QR, Code movement you're seeing, right? Like I see, like I, like more prevalently, I see like touch and go, which is the, the basically the the highway card for you know for paying toll, right? But everyone's part of this network, so but now I see them doing QR pay everywhere. Is is it because of Do It Now?
2: Well, I, I, I think if you can recall, like a few years ago, you'd walk into a restaurant and you go into a restaurant, you probably want a buffet or whatever, but what you get is a buffet of QR codes at the checkout. Yes, correct. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and 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 for a consumer, it's like, dude, am I really gonna download ten apps? No. Yeah. You know, and yeah, yeah, and yeah, and yeah. this is when yeah. sort of e-wallets were sort of going crazy at the point. Mm. Now what you're to see okay. is inter, interoperability, right? So yeah. you're you're correct. there's a single QR code, and no matter what sort of app you have, whether it's a banking app or an mm, e-wallet correct. app, yeah, you use it now. It's through a single network where all these guys are connected uh, through a single entry point. Yeah. Through a single network, it's called Paynet in Malaysia. It's mm-hmm. a Bank yeah. like our own, own uh, subsidiary. Yeah, um, you know, and 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 um, uh, yeah, in effect, that that's what it is. What we're gonna mm-hmm. see, we'll do it now. Um, and this is traditionally in Malaysia, sort of without getting into too many technicalities around sort of payments. Everything hasn't been real time, mm-hmm. and I think you guys have also been in, ah. okay. and you guys are also in the e-commerce world. You know, when we look at other forms of payments, take cards as an example, mm. they can be expensive. And in some cases, particularly yeah. credit cards, very low penetration rate in Malaysia, um, or Southeast Asia, yeah. or Southeast mm-hmm. Asia, just generally. Um, what we can, what we're now gonna see with, with Do It Now, which is very, very similar to how UPI played out in India, is you're gonna see real-time transactions, which are pretty, pretty close to free, um, mm-hmm. you know, and you're na- you can now access through your bank account, your e-wallet, et cetera, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Um, and this isn't started off in the point of sale world. It's going to go online. It's going to go into recurring yeah. payments. You know, so we are very, very bullish as to how this plays out. You know, and in yeah. India, what we see is that UPI payments, which is sort of what I just described, now yeah. in terms of market share is around 40 percent. In the next sort of two, three years, they expect it to become a monopoly around seventy, eighty percent. Yes,
1: in effect, you become a Visa, Mastercard, but for this new infrastructure, basically.
2: Uh, it, I mean. Uh, uh, <sighs> So Visa MasterCard is a network, um, you know, and and uh, the do it now rails is another network. Um, Yeah, I think what sort of following what has happened in India is that when you sort of put the two up, particularly with domestic based payments, you're Mm going to see a lot of a lot of flow start to go through the domestic network. Um, you know, and yeah. which is very different to sort of how a lot of the payment gateways have been built, particularly in Malaysia. You know, yeah. you think about the incumbents, ip ADA, GHL, mm. you know, who yeah, traditionally correct, correct. traditionally are very sort of card centric companies. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and with these payments being very, very close to free, it's like how do you make money on mm. a on a on a transaction yeah. that's free yeah. in India? It is free, yeah. you know, so it's really around wrapping services around it, whether it's financial services, software services, mm. et cetera, et cetera. Mm. So when we look at yeah. it from this perspective, you know, Malaysia's a few years behind India. Um, yeah. And we're starting to see that play out here. Very, very, very similar trends on a macro level. Um, and for them, entering this market made a lot of sense. Like I said earlier, you know, the thesis we have around sort of not just focusing on payments, but the services around it, you know, monetizing elsewhere. Yeah. Um, yeah something really sort of very, very consistent between our two companies. So I think for them was an entry point to Southeast Asia. You know, for us was obviously we can operate at different scale that we have chosen, you know, we have been able to previously, mm-hmm. um, you know, and when we start with Malaysia, we're seeing very similar trends, sort of, you know, probably behind Malaysia, actually, funny enough, you know, it play out in Thailand, Singapore, to an extent mm. in, in Indonesia. You know where these real-time payment rails all come in and we think it's one of the biggest disruptors we'll see in payments for a
1: long long time um, interesting yeah hmm. my, my, my last question before because i'm hogging and i'm hogging no, no, the no, questions no, sorry no, fine. Uh, yeah um uh, so how, how as a business and how as a consumer should we think about different companies payment as payment providers like you know shoppy pay grab pay go go to pay like like how does that like work with these new networks, right? Because literally I'll just scan one QR card, but then it's going to get redirected to one of these mm. other guys, right? Yeah. And they're taking a slice. So how do we think of it from a business perspective and a consumer's perspective, like, Or like a consumer probably won't care. It's just easier for me now, right? Yeah. And I guess that's where like Curly can benefit, right? But then yeah. what does that mean for the business side? They're all competing for what?
2: That's a good point. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, so so I'll start off with the business perspective or um, merchants, you know, at the end of the day, what a merchant cares about, is yeah predominantly price um, yeah, you know and 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 secondly value you know how, how do you provide value for for you know uh, access to these payments um what yeah. we're going to see is is the price severely go down um you know it's going to be very very close to zero um yeah. you know from a transaction fee perspective which businesses are like bank nagara is pumping this a lot um you know and yeah. incentivizing a lot of businesses to move on to this world uh, yeah. then really comes a question about how do you provide services to access the network you know of course, I can, I can trend, I'm a small merchant, I'm a micro merchant. I've just set up a storefront, uh, but I can, I, can, I can, the payment's free. But how do I actually, you know, list my storefront, you know, send payment links, yeah. all that sort of stuff, right? Um, you yeah. know, so we sort of view ourselves sort of really coming into that space strong. From a consumer's yeah. per- perspective, you know, the end of the day, consumer does, it's all about user, user experience, right? Um, yeah. And because yeah. it's, it's always free and stuff like that, um, you know, in terms of consideration, I think one thing that we could potentially see, um, is maybe a little controversial is potentially the death of e-wallets. Um, mm. so, um, you know, with, um, everything's starting to go through the network. Now banks will become part of yeah. the network, um, you know, and, and in effect, you know, an e-wallet is a pass-through account. Yeah, correct. It's a store of value yeah. of whatever up to a thousand ringgit, like 3000, yeah. et etc.
1: I think that's true for a lot of the early guys who tried to play this game, but they couldn't really figure out what the product market fit was, what they were really trying to solve, you know, long-term for driving long-term value. But I would argue for something like a touch and go network where I have to drive every day, transportation infrastructure, you can't really remove that. So that's yeah. going to be a little bit stickier, I'd say probably.
2: Yeah, that's fine. But you know, in, in terms of sort of, I mean, you think about the user experience right now, I go to wallet. What I have to do is I top up wallet Yeah top up the e-wallet do and then spend and then yeah. spend the e-wallet yeah. um right. yeah you know now through the, the these do it now rails i'll be able to go direct to the bank and have this exact same experience
1: yeah you're right all
2: these merchants yeah. you know which then i mean again i i go back to india and how these all these things have all played out you know paytm obviously have lost a ton yeah, of market right. share yeah uh you know mm. because they were very focused on the p2p space and then subsequently upi comes out up now and you know you can't can't make a lot of yeah. money out of you know a payment that's free, um, so, <laughs> um, yeah, I think from a consumer's perspective, it's just going to become a lot, lot easier, uh, and uh, you know we'll start to see shifts in sort of the the actual applications yeah. you'll use to make payments. Um, you know, yeah. like, uh, mm.
1: So I guess now your your ambition is going to have to be very similar to Razorpay's. How, how do you think about expansion then? Because yeah. going to each market, you'd have to get licenses. You have to get partners, I guess you have to rebuild teams, uh, and then does this mean there's going to be a unified network across Southeast Asia in the future? Or is it all just going to be fragmented? I think, I mean,
2: we all know sort of Southeast Asia is fragmented period. Um, you know, and, and so it's not gonna change. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, 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 but you know, particularly when you talk about financial services, it's even more fragmented, you know, in terms of market. Right. Um, you know, yeah. you're talking about different, di- different regulations, different payment preferences, um, you know, uh, yeah. et cetera. Um, you know, I think, uh, like I said, you know, we're, we're very aligned, uh, you know, with, the RazorPay team, uh, you know, as to sort of what it is we want to achieve. Um, and sort of, you know, where we view payments is going just generally, of course, when we start to scale, you know, regionally, you know, each market will have its own nuances. Um, you know, so it's just adapting sort of whatever business climate there is payment preference, et cetera, infrastructure wise. Um, but I think, you know, with, with the view that longer term, you know, we'll go where sort of, you know, we feel that the payments market is going, uh, which is Mm, sort of this shift to real time, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Hmm. I mean, I think it's an interesting question here, right? Like for people who have started companies in Southeast Asia, ultimately, unless you're in like Indonesia or something, everyone has to expand eventually. Right. So, you know, in the framework of like say geographic expansion versus like, I think you're sort of hinting at a lot of product or services expansion, right? Like, you know, those are two different ways to do it, but like, how do you you know how do you what's your your framework you know towards the approach like which one is better where do you start what's the how do you optimize this
2: I think I think if you saw the base layer right which is really that's sort of access to infrastructure you know payments is really at the core of everything you know if you don't win at payments you're not going to win at the other things and you don't provide a great payment experience you're not going to you're not going to get that particular customer to 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 do all that sort of stuff Mm. so you know Number one is winning at payments, you know, and going sort of where those markets are and sort of where we feel they are going is more this shift towards, you know, real time bank to bank payments, etc., cetera, um, mm-hmm. as well as other sort of payments. Let's not touch on crypto for now. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, Our uh, resident
0: yeah. crypto fanatics aren't here right now, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> if they were, they'd be all over
2: this. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, I mean, following that, then you start to talk about the services layer, you know, and, and you know. Mm particularly around monetization, I provide a great payment experience, but I can't really monetize it. You know, uh, how can I charge 1% or 2%, you know, when the bank is charging zero? You know, mm-hmm, I've got to, yeah. I've got to justify, yeah. I've got to justify that, you know, through great software, um, you know, and I so, so that's sort of the second layer. And finally, you know, third layer is when you start to provide all these layers, when you win at payments, you have the sticky customer because you provide all these software services is then looking at other things, you know, such as financial services, um, you know, in our particular case, potentially stuff around business banking, um, mm-hmm. you know, you've got that customer, you've got all that data, uh, particularly when it comes to, uh, you know, uh, financial transactions, um, you know, and you can start to move into that space too, which is, I mean, like I said, very, very it's what Razor Pay in effect are executing right now in India, you know, they've got the yeah. fastest fastest growing neo bank in India, yeah. uh, which was only launched like a, a few years ago, um, but really sort of, you know, you still got to win at payments and that's really at the core of everything. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, so that, I guess that's the longer term play is to be a neo bank. Uh, is that the goal? Um good question. Oops.
2: look, you know, I think it's just an exciting time uh generally yep. in the region. Um obviously we've got the digital banking licenses coming. Yeah. Um, you know, which should be yeah, announced yeah, yeah. Uh, this month next month
0: or something like that. Oh,
2: um, you know, and yep. and you know, obviously, you know, we're gonna see sort of the Big tech in, in Asia move into uh, sort of financial mm-hmm. services. We feel more on the consumer side. Um, in in terms of uh, you know the other trends we see, which are going to become very interesting for businesses like ours, is stuff around open APIs or open banking, mm-hmm. uh, which is oh, yeah. Yeah, which is starting to be mandated, um, you know, a little bit more. Um, you know, I think it's a natural progression for a lot of payment companies, you know, diversifying into other forms of financial services, particularly yeah. sort of you know business banking.
0: Correct.
1: Does that mean we, we start to see the Venmo's of each country in Southeast Asia coming? Is, is that existing? Is that existing anywhere in Asia? Uh, Venmo
2: being sort of a, a, a P2P. Yeah. Venmo is like, a wallet, right?
1: Um, yeah. It's, it's a bit more than that, right? Because there's also a lot of stuff going on in infrastructure um, where they kind of make it semi real time, right?
2: Um, yeah i mean without going to too much details around it. i mean the states is actually from an infra standpoint actually a little bit behind us. it's weird you never thought okay. so you know and also you know how these companies can monetize you know you you talk about sort of interchange rates and stuff like that um yeah. uh, these sort of businesses being able to charge way way more uh, to their customers than businesses here can mm-hmm. so you've got to be creative around it mm-hmm. see, um, i think yeah. i think i think this whole notion of obviously when we talk about a consumer super app is really starting to play out here um and of course you know Venmo which mm. is obviously PayPal is trying to you know build, build that up in in, in the States yeah. so of course you got grab you got Shopee you got all those sort of guys who are competing yeah, that, on correct. that front I think on the business lens as well you're gonna see okay I hate, I hate this term super app but you know <laughs> <laughs> you know you yeah, you yeah. you 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 be able to you be able one to want to do everything um you know and it's just mm. I think it's just a natural extension I think we are starting to see companies do that a little bit this whole sort of um, if we talk about financial services and fintech this whole idea of sort of you know when we trace this back a few years ago you had companies like ours who were very very so focused on a particular niche mm. you know being building yeah. you know excellent right. products for that niche and at the time this whole thing was like oh it's the unbundling of financial services the unbundling of banking yeah mm. uh, what we're seeing right. is the, the the rebundling of all of that you know it's 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 number of fronts you know Generally speaking, financial service sticky relationship. Yep. There's multiple levers yeah. multiple levers to pull when it comes to sort of monetization and sort of creating creating better customer service, et cetera. Um, so you know, I think I think that's the general trend we're gonna start seeing um, you know, um here.
0: I mean, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think that's like the general trend of technology, right? I mean, Alex and I, we talked about this where one of the fundamental aspects of technology is it drives these cycles of bundling. And rebundling, right? It just happens yeah, at different yeah. parts of the value chain, right? Like the, the example that I always use was the media, uh, was the media value chain, right? So basically, essentially, Google unbundled newspapers, right? The distribution, editorial, yeah. marketing, and sales of newspapers, and then they recreated that bundle on the internet and they, you know, aggregated all that value to their own uh, bottom line. So I, I think that, I think that that plays out. Um, Sorry, you're gonna you're going to ask a question, now, Zach, or not Zach? Alex, sorry.
1: No, I was just kind of curious. Like, how do you think about how did like how does the banking role play out in this kind of I don't know rebundling? I guess you could say. You know, do, do are they partners? Are they are they acquiring? Um, what what do you think they should be doing, or how how will you work with them?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. I think. I sort of have a view on this, you know, which I don't know whether it's consistent with what's going to happen or, 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 or others in the market. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, you know, with, with neo banking coming as well, you know, digital banking. You know, when, once you have the Shopee Bank as an example, you know, we're going to see some pretty yeah. interesting stuff come out of that. Yeah. Um, I think just generally, if we if we talk about incumbent banks, um, you know, what and take a step back, you know, what banks are great at is managing money. What yeah. they're not great at is technology. Um, you mm-hmm. know, so when we sure. when we start, when we start to to, to, to take that, you know, as the sort of how we view banks and sort of how we will sort of interact with banks, you know, moving forward, um, banks will be stores of money in some ways, banks will be a set of APIs moving forward, you know, and work mm-hmm. with enablers like ourselves, yeah. um, you know, who build that software layer, who built great products and services, et cetera, on top of these, on top of these banks, you know, to, at the end of the day, you know, work in partnership to create a much, much better customer service, you know, uh, experience that we can for, you know, a business or a consumer, mm. because, you know, we all know yeah. how, how much quicker it is for us to ship features and products and stuff to market uh, yeah. versus, you know, a bank who's got to deal with sort of compliance, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. You know, um, yeah. a lot of a lot of the IT resources are generally spent on internal, um, you know, technologies yeah. as, as opposed to shipping Correct. products, um, yeah. you know, so. I think, I think the future is partnering, um, you know, and our mm. and, and whole notion of what we conceive a bank to be, uh, you know, will shift moving forward.
1: Yeah, mm. I think that tends to be true. Like one of my good friends was on the fintech arm for CIMB, and they went around acquiring a lot of digital licenses in Vietnam and Philippines. They launched digital banks there. But I think exactly what you say—they're not going to be as savvy to build out a proper product, service, mm-hmm. UI, UX—and I think partnering is where they will win then. Because yeah. one, for a startup to get these licenses can be near impossible, to get to the, or, or even the sandbox, you know, unless you're already a domain expert there for a while, a family business or whatever, right? So, mm-hmm. and then I think you know, it, if you want to accelerate the trend, it makes sense just to partner for both sides, actually, right? You yeah. Know, and then yeah. you know, banks get lower acquisition costs, and then they get the tech side, and then the, I guess the entrepreneurs win—you know—they they get the infrastructure which they need. So I think so that it kind of makes. That, 100%. That's
2: yeah. right. That's right. And banks are starting to wake up to that a little bit. Not all <laughs> banks. Yeah. You know, I, I, think, I, I think just generally, you know, I mean, we say this to the banks as well. But you know, banks banks are proprietary in nature, um, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, it's the typical sort of big corporate, I can do it all, um, yeah. you yeah. know, type of mentality. Um, but I think they're starting to wake up, and particularly when we see the more agile, smaller banks, uh, you know, be quite aggressive with, with here at mm-hmm. least with how they go to market yeah. how they partner with sort of uh, software enablers to do
0: this. Mm. Yeah. Got it.
1: So, I mean, I guess we have about, you know, 10 minutes or so left. So, I mean, what about yeah. you? What, what's on your mind these days? Uh, do you have any questions or yeah. what do you want? What do you, what do you want someone? to
2: talk about? Yeah. 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 I want to talk about. So what do you guys see going on in the, what do you think? What do you think it's, it's going to be in the next big trend from both of you guys? Cause you both are sort of e-commerce uh. guys, right? Um, That's our background. That's
1: our background. Yeah. Um, so talk yeah, to, but we've
2: uh, talked yeah. to me about web three, the metaverse, et cetera,
0: et cetera. Your <laughs> we have talked about this before. Have to, I hate this, it.
1: This, this rabbit hole goes very deep. So, <laughs> um, uh, I don't know, Dave, what Dave's quite well versed in the, the media side of the metaverse. We have discussed at length about it. Um, I don't know. What's your general feeling short-term Dave?
0: I mean, I think we talked about this before, right? I, I think, it, okay, if we talk about the metaverse specifically, I think the metaverse is going, there's still, it's going to probably roll out a lot like the consumer internet rolled out in the late eighties, early nineties. It's going to be like fragmented. There's not going to be a lot of interoperability and the dream of the metaverse as told through sort of like science fiction and popular culture will not be, it, it, we're a long, long way off Very from long that. Way right? off. And I actually, so my thesis for the metaverse is actually the entry point is going to be, um, business as opposed to work consumer. It's going to be, a, it's going to come in through work, right? So if you think about how the personal computer was, um, adopted on a mass scale, it was actually in the 70s and 80s again. So it was actually businesses buying these things to increase productivity for their employees. And then ultimately uh, the employees are like, oh, this is pretty cool. I want one of these, um, at my home. Right. So that's sort of like the, just like a really basic approach. And then like sort of another yeah. layer on top of that is if you think about it, like this idea, uh, of sort of a, um, consuming, uh, or immersive experience where you spend like eight to nine hours of your day doing whatever you know, in many ways that's, we already do that. It's like, you do that on a computer, you do that at work, like I'm this, this now. zoom, this call work from home right now is yes, to a certain right. extent, right? Like work. we're sitting here talking to each other, we're having, uh, an interaction yeah. and an engagement. So I think that's like a very natural, um, extension of an already existing use case. Right. And then and then I think from the, the third perspective here is from like a technology layer. Um, there's some pretty substantial technological challenges to adopting sort of like that immersive experience on a gaming context. You guys have played any sort of like AR, not AR, VR, um, game in the last, I don't know, like three or four years. Um, there's a lot of technological hurdles. One is in terms of like connectivity speed. And two, it's just about this, uh, I can't remember the name, but essentially you get like a degree of motion sickness. Because yeah. there's, a, <laughs> there's a there's a there's yeah. a scientific term that I can't remember what it's called, but it, it's basically kind of like uncanny valley type thing where it's you, yeah. you, you can't sustain it for long periods of time. So yeah. that's my thought on the metaverse. <laughs> I don't know. Uh,
1: I'm I'm liking the thesis more about work in the metaverse, because especially what we've been seeing in the news, like we recently we talked uh, a few days ago about India banning free fire. Right. And yeah. So like even China is clamped down. Uh US is pretty free, but like it's you know, it's in its own market, its own world, right? So the 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 everyone, every podcast will say the on-ramp is gaming, but it's it's maybe a lot more fragmented than you think, especially the way these uh, countries are handling the gaming sector and clamping down, right? So yeah, and then if if it is gaming, the probably the biggest use case you're gonna find is Work like li- like playing a game to live to work, kind of like Axie Infinity, right? Where, you know, it's a game, but if you do this like activities in the game, you can actually live off that, right? Which technically that is work, right? So that's going to be the biggest use case. So, um, and we're like they, they've said, it's very far. Like I think we're very far from seeing anything manifested like in sci-fi where you plug in. If anything, I think. If it is work, you're going to see more things like AR in the real life where you're plugged in and that plugs into other things that send to your other ecosystem at home and it's going to be a lot of multiverses and fragmentation that are being, that needs to be threaded together Probably like, you know, payments too. Right. You know, so mm-hmm. I think that's the, how I'm, I'm kind of viewing it, but yeah, I don't know. Any, any thoughts on your end, Zach? I'm just am just, <laughs> just absorbing, listener. <laughs> just absorbing. Yeah, no, no, actually, yeah. I, I
2: do have another question. So, I mean, uh, earlier you guys were talking about sort of the VC market, which is frothing, um, mm. you know, and I think uh, particularly for both of you guys, right? Obviously, you know, you've been in, in, in sort of the tech industry, uh, you know, in this part of the world for quite a while now, um, you know, and particularly now over the past like, couple of years, we're seeing sort of just the amount of capital and valuations just go nuts. Um, mm. What do you guys think about it? Sustainable, or you know, or just just generally, you know, your thoughts and sort of where where the the Southeast Asian markets moving around at all?
0: Oh, I had a really good presentation on this in like episode three. If you want to go look at it, <laughs> I I obviously oh, I,
2: I obviously watched it why so I'm asking the question
0: again. <laughs> oh, oh, okay, okay. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. Like, I, do you want to go first, Alex? Or I can go first. That's up to you. You go first. I like. I feel like on, on this particular format, I've been pretty consistent in my opinions on sort of the VC market and how it ties back into the overall macro economic market. I mean, you see this in the US, right? Like um, inflation rates are coming in at like seven 8%, right? And the Fed has been pretty vocal in their... Um, uh, in their stance towards one ending of quantitative easing and two raising of the interest rates. And you already see sort of some pretty big, um, uh, declines or, or markdowns in a lot of these like hyper growth companies, yeah. right? So like Netflix is down 50% C is taking a sh- Yeah. C is taking a shellacking. Yeah. Right? Um, <laughs> and I, I think ultimately what's going to happen is you're going to see This trickle down into private markets, right? It's just a matter of time, and uh, you know. And I told the story before, but like you know, a couple like maybe a year and a half ago, basically when the U.S. government announced their first round of um, COVID stimulus, every every family uh, office uh, that I talked to was basically saying we're deploying all of our cash into these like basically anything that's a store of value, that's not cash, right? Because it's just, it's not gonna be worth anything. And so that's, I think drove or driven a lot of like what we see in terms of like people raising ridiculous funds, which then trickles down to ridiculous rounds, which trickles down to, you know, all sorts of stupid things. But uh, again, like I said, my position on this is it's completely unsustainable. It's ultimately a cycle, right? Like, I think we're at sort of like the frothiest part of the cycle, And I think we're going we're due for a pretty substantial correction in the near future.
1: Yeah. My my two lines of thought is like, you know, you could look at it from a top-down or bottom-up perspective. And and the top-down is that. You just need to follow the money, like where, like, so all these VCs, like I think the hottest space still now that hasn't slowed down is crypto. Like they raised crazy amounts of money. So what you got to do is just follow the LPs. Now, now, where are the LPs most affected? And these are, these are very cyclical things. So, you know, we're talking about pension funds, endowment. Well, maybe not endowment funds. It depends how, how they, you know, construct a portfolio, right? So you just got to see that kind of sentiment. You know, if they get hit very hard in a downturn, that's going to come. You know, or, or if they don't, you know, then things continue. But if they if they do get hit, you know, then they have tighter purse strings to actually allocate more capital into the VC as an asset class. Right. So it really depends there from a top-down perspective. It it really just starts from the money and how well, which is then tied to the economy and you know, how, how you know, which is tied to QE and these other things. So a lot of that's why macro is a very interesting topic these days. The the other way you collect it, you know, is if you're an entrepreneur, like what should you be doing? And I think that depends on what cycle of stage you are? Are you in product market fit? Because if you're in product market fit and you're raising too much and you haven't really found it, it, just leads to a lot of undisciplined you probably spending wildly, hiring too much, and then you just having to shut it down in a few years. But now say for your case where you've now, you know, Been acquired, it's kind of different position. If you have a playbook and your goal is expansion, and you already know the pain point very well, you should probably be building a war chest, kind of like C did, right? Maybe C had foresight in this. So I mean, it's I I I used to think of it as black or white. You know, uh, is it thrifty? Should you take advantage? But it's it's really depending on where you are and if you have clarity and what you're going to do with the money. But if you don't have any clarity, I suggest to be more disciplined and just raise to a reasonable runway, you know, runway. like you know, traditional stuff before this crazy past few years, you know, what everyone was saying on podcast before. Uh, but I, I think, you know, it's just it's just very dependent on where you are. But, you know, so it's top down, bottom up. That's how I kind of view it. And is this sustainable? Uh, yeah, you know, maybe you don't even care about that. Just focus, you know, if it's bottom up, just focus on where you are and if it makes sense or not. Right? So <laughs> that's how I think about it. Yeah. Yeah, cool. it makes sense. Um, so. Uh, any, any final comments? I think we're at the closing point. So yeah, uh, for your next call, right? I have a question no for you, Zach. If
0: you don't, you don't have anything, if it's you don't have sorry. anything, yeah. yeah. I, okay. This is, this is like a, a soul searching question, right? So like, mm-hmm. what do you know now that you wish you knew when you were younger or when you started the business or however you want to approach it? Mm. I know you, so uh, it's all good. <laughs> uh, charm. He wish he didn't know you. <laughs> it's too late. <laughs> um, what do I know now that I don't know? Uh, yeah. Like the face of song, you know?
2: <laughs> that I don't, that I didn't know. I, 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 you know I, I mean, I think probably everyone's gone through this, and you just got to go through the experience. There'll be ups, there'll be downs. It's just sort of, you know, for me personally, it's just... You got to keep a, a sort of an equilibrium around it all, right? Not be affected by the highs, not be affected too low by the lows, you know, and just sort of keep a, a steady state throughout. I
1: think yeah. you've I think you've done that very well, and it's yeah. paid off. So, congratulations!
0: Yeah, nailed it, man. We'll see how it goes. We'll see how it
1: goes. Yeah. Well, trust me, a lot of us would be would rather be in your position than anywhere else. So, you know, I think you've done well, and just give yourself more credit. So, yeah, you know. Thanks, man.
0: Yeah, Yeah. thanks, Thanks, Zach. Appreciate your time.
1: Thanks for uh, being on the show. Yeah, Yeah. appreciate it. Hey,
2: thanks, guys. Thanks very much.